0: wine of Belfast, Maine, an independent enterprise that supports free speech, democracy, and independent media.
1: The time is 4.02, and you are listening to Community Radio WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. And this is Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture for Tuesday, July 18, 2017. I'm Amy Brown. We're starting today with a piece produced by Meredith DeFrancesco, a continuation of her coverage of the Penobscot River Solidarity Rally that was held on the Bangor waterfront on July 9th.
2: On June 30th, the Friday before the United States celebrated its Independence Day, the United States Court of Appeals sided with the state of Maine and against the Penobscot Nation in what has been referred to as the River Case. Penobscot Nation versus Janet Mills, Attorney General for the State of Maine. In a vote of two to one, the three judge panel upheld the U.S. District Court decision by Judge George Singal that the Penobscot River, surrounding the Penobscot Nation's reservation islands, are not part of tribal territory. The majority ruled that the language of the 1980 Maine Indian Land Claims Settlement Act supports their decision, and that federal Indian law, canons of construction, do not apply, which requires treaty ambiguities to be construed liberally in favor of tribes. In a strong 37-page dissenting opinion, Judge Juan Torello opposed the majority's reasoning and conclusions, and supported the position of the Penobscot Nation and the United States Department of the Interior, that the Penobscot tribe did not relinquish rights to the main stem of the Penobscot River surrounding their islands in the 1796, 1818, and 1833 treaties with Massachusetts and subsequently Maine, and that the 1980 Maine Indian Land Claim Settlement Act reserved what was retained in those treaties. Furthermore, the Settlement Act provides the tribe's sustenance fishing rights within the boundaries of the reservation, which could only include the Penobscot River. Torella writes on page 61 of the decision, quote, The fact that the Indians can fish within the reservation implies that there is a place to do so. There is no place to fish on the uplands of the nation's islands, which implies that some part of the river has to be part of the reservation, end quote. Even if this was not the case, Torella states, Maine common law regarding the riparian rights of private land would apply. In his dissent, Torella also lays out a number of times when the state of Maine, the Maine Indian Tribal State Commission, and the United States government have recognized river waters to be part of Penobscot territory, including in 1995 and 1997 filings before the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission FERC. Maine Eel permits have advised the public, quote, "...portions of the Penobscot River and submerged lands surrounding the islands in the river are part of the Penobscot Indian Reservation," end quote. Most recently, in the 2007 case Maine v. Johnson, the state acknowledged and the courts affirmed the Penobscot Nation's legal standing to proceed in the case, Torella, page 58, quote, In order for the nation to have standing in a case concerning waste discharges into water, its reservation had to include at least some part of the Penobscot River, end quote. Besides these reasons, Judge Torella underscores the Supreme Court precedent in Alaska Pacific Fisheries v. Alaska, which addressed similar ambiguities concerning the referencing of water in treaty language and the language of the Settlement Act. Torella, on page 65, quote, the Supreme Court's binding precedent, especially in Alaska Pacific fisheries, establishes that the words lands and islands can include contiguous waters and submerged lands. On the facts of the present case, there is no question that they do include the waters and submerged lands of the main stem, End quote. The Penobscot Nation has stated, supported by the United States government and Torella's dissenting opinion, that the context within which the Settlement Act was drawn up must be recognized when interpreting intent. The Penobscot Nation states they did not give up the river surrounding the reservation islands in the Settlement Act negotiations. Torella, page 48, quote, a major purpose of the nation in entering into the Settlement Act's in addition to the fishing, was an increased sovereignty over its territory and the regaining of some of the territory it had lost, thus surrendering the river upon which its Aboriginal lands were centred was plainly not part of the nation's purpose. Retaining the main stem was, end quote. For their part, the Attorney General's office has lauded the win as an affirmation, quote, that the Penobscot River is held in trust by the state of Maine for all Maine people. In the Attorney General's press release, they state quote, The nation filed suit to assert ownership of the entire river, despite the plain language of the landmark 1980 Man- Maine Indian Land Claim Settlement Act that stated otherwise. We are gratified by the court's ruling. State's Attorney General Janet Mills, quote, We look forward to working with the Penobscot Nation on areas of mutual interest. We respect and honor the Penobscot Nation's deep historical and cultural ties with the river and look forward to working with them to preserve the health and vibrancy of this major watershed, which is so critical to all the people of Maine. And,
1: that was Meredith Francesco. Sherry Mitchell was one of the speakers at the Penobscot River Sovereignty Rally,
3: that was held following the decision. and My name is Sherry Mitchell from the Penobscot Nation. My family is Bear Clan from the Penobscot Nation and Crow Clan from the Passamaquoddy Tribe at Zibaik. And I'm really happy and honored to be here with all of you and with all of my... Um, relatives from the Penobscot Nation and our friends from around the state of Maine. I want to acknowledge our uh, elders that are here. There are a number of elders that are here from our tribe. Um, uh, You know, I just want to acknowledge you. We have some tribal council members uh, that are here from our tribe. I want to acknowledge you and the service that you give to our community. I want to acknowledge all of the allies who have been standing with us. Um, There are some events where we get 500 people and some events where we get 100 people. Um, And you know, one of the things that really strikes me, because I've been doing this work for a long time, have been involved with this particular issue since um, the very beginning. Maria Gerard and I started doing workshops called "Connecting the Dots." Um, as soon as that uh, statement came out of the Attorney General's office, um, and we have uh, so many people, we have over 30 organizations that come forward. Um, To support us in this work now in the state of Maine Uh, We have built relationships with all of these people over the years over the past 30 years in doing this work to Protect the Penobscot River Um, And I want you to all take a real long hard look at this sign behind me So We're Penobscot people from the Penobscot nation and we live in relationship an inseparable relationship with the Penobscot River. There is a reason why it is called Penobscot, because it is connected to us relationally. Um, And so uh, there's so much history that's involved in all of this, this is not a new issue. I've had people that have contacted me in the last several weeks because, as you all know, Janet Mills is getting ready to run for governor, and she doesn't want all of these blights from her history uh, to be apparent to the public. Um, so uh, people have contacted me saying, well, I would support you and support the tribe if you stopped um, you know, linking Janet Mills to this story. She can't be separated from this story. Um so, is Janet Mills solely responsible for where we're standing today? Absolutely not. Um, what happened here is part of a long history, a 142 year old history, um, just with, in regard to the state of Maine. 142 years ago, the state of Maine, uh, a short time after it was founded, passed an amendment to their constitution to hide. The section of the Maine Constitution that spells out the state of Maine's responsibilities towards the tribes. In that amendment, they stated that all of those underlying uh, legal obligations would still be intact. However, the state of Maine, the um, people of Maine were prohibited. Think about this. They were prohibited from publishing that section of the Maine Constitution. 142 years ago, right? So when you think about the way that these situations are handled, they're handled oftentimes legally, such as the situation that we're in right now, where there is this legal fiction being created around it to justify um, the underlying intent to take from the people, to continue to take from the people. Uh, And it's always been for for the purpose of profiting others. And so... When we think about that 142-year history, we think about the fact that these things are are decided legally. Who are the people who are going to be making those legal decisions? Uh, You have legal practitioners, attorneys, who are going to be arguing those cases, and you have judges who are going to be deciding on those arguments. And how can those legal practitioners, how can those legal decision makers make good decisions about the state of Maine's responsibility to the tribes if the state has added an amendment to their constitution to hide those responsibilities, to hide and prohibit the printing of their legal obligations to the Maine tribes. So when we talk about Janet Mills role in this, she's just one of many who has consistently upheld this attempt, this um, long history of taking from the Maine tribes She didn't write the statement that came from Schneider, right? Her responsibility is her dogged determination to spin the narrative surrounding this case. I personally have witnessed her provide misleading information to the public around this case. As the chief has said, this is a territorial taking. It has to do with our subsistence hunting and fishing rights. Um... I watched her come out of a crowd, ask if there were any Penobscot tribal members there in the crowd, and then say to the people, you know, this is a water quality case. This is about us protecting the water quality for all people of Maine. This is not a water quality case. The state is involved in a water quality case because the state of Maine is also suing the EPA because they don't want to raise their water quality standards to um, sustenance uh, quality levels right so that means that one or two things were happening either the attorney general of the state of Maine was purposely misleading the people of Maine by giving them erroneous facts about this case or the attorney general doesn't know the facts of the case coming out of her office bearing her name either one of those things is unacceptable In the statement that she released following the First Circuit's decision, she also claimed that uh, the tribe was trying to take control of the entire river, which is a bold-faced lie. That is a bold-faced lie. And as an attorney myself, it appalls me to know that the Attorney General for the state of Maine is able to put out in a public statement such boldly, Inaccurate information to the people of Maine this was never about the Penobscot nation trying to take control of the entire river This has to do with the watershed area surrounding our reservation this has to do with waterways that have always been uh, Within our relationship to that water. It's acknowledged in countless treaties In the 2010 Bureau of Census report They list Penobscot territorial reservation waters In the 2007 Maine v. Johnson case, they talk about the southern boundary of the tribe's territorial waters, a Supreme Court case out of the state of Maine. Where did those rights go? Can one party unilaterally eliminate and erase the rights of a people because they've made an agreement with a foreign oil and gas company to come across our territory? In July of 2012, one month before the decision, or this, it wasn't a decision or an order, it was a statement, a memorandum, came out of the Attorney General's office. In July of 2012, Enbridge Line 9 in Canada was approved, which was a reversal of a tar sands pipeline, so that they were going to pipe tar sands from the Alberta tar sands through to the east. They had to find a way to get that tar sands oil out of the country. They had failed to do that with Keystone XL. They were meeting opposition all across the country. So when they when they approved the reversal of Enbridge Line 9 in July of 2012 in Canada, our governor and other representatives of our state government went to Canada and met with Canadian officials and ExxonMobil. When they came back from that meeting, 1 month after Enbridge Line 9 was approved, That memorandum came out of the Attorney General's office. Where do you think they were going to cross those pipelines to get them into uh, the bay so that they could ship them out of the country? They were going to come across the Penobscot River. And so when you really look behind the scenes, when you start connecting the dots, um, Janet Mills uh, was speaking to uh, one of the individuals that spoke here today um, last week about this case and she said no it's really about protecting the economic interests of all Mainers she kept bringing it back to economic interest over and over and over again what about the interests of life? right? people need to really understand what is going on here we have a skewered value system that is based on these colonial capitalist models that puts profit above all other values, right? We need to end that. We need to start putting the value of life, all life, at the very top of that list. And we are not going to do that when we have individuals who have a long history of putting profit first, suddenly claiming to be concerned about the rights of human beings, right? So when you have somebody who has been a politician who has actually fought against people's civil rights, who has fought doggedly against tribal rights for years, um, who has not stood on the side of the environment... Um, or the protection of life, suddenly coming out and saying, I care about immigrants, I care about the tribes, I want to work with them, I care about all of these people, Uh, then you're really, it's really, one thing that's really clear coming out of the Attorney General's office is that somebody's making a campaign bid, right? And so that's really clear. Um, I also want to mention the fact that, you know, when you look at the language of the Main Claims Settlement Act, That original title of that was the Maine Indian Land Claims Settlement Act. And then it shifted somehow along the way, nobody really knows how, right, to the Maine Claims Settlement Act. The land language was taken out of that. And so when Dr. Renko was talking about the canons of construction, these are legal guidelines that come from the Supreme Court that tell judges how they need to decide cases that are related to federal Indian law. Okay, so that canon of construction that says because a lot of people were doing this around the country, a lot of states were doing this, they were saying, "Well, if you give us you your this land, or you sign this land over to you at gunpoint, um, then that also includes all of your water." The Supreme Court said, "No, there are contiguous waters that transfer with those lands." That issue has been decided by the Supreme Court already. Um, That language is clear, right? And when it says in the canons of construction that what's not expressly granted is retained, that's really clear, isn't it? Right? And so in the Indian Land Claims Settlement Act, now known as the Indian Claims Settlement Act, it specifically states land only. So what the state is saying is that, oh, no, that means that the tribes only retain those lands. What that means to us is that we never negotiated our water rights we did not expressly grant our water rights, ever, right? So those are retained. there's are retained treaty rights that we hold. And so if you really care about issues related to health, to, uh, you know, quality of life here in the state of Maine, it's known as vacation land. Um, if you start paying attention Uh, I've done this work for a while in a lot of places. I do larger-scale indigenous rights work and a lot of policy stuff related to the protection of sacred sites and indigenous lands. If you start noticing the pattern, what always happens is there's a backdoor deal going on with industry, then there's an attack on tribal rights because tribes have very specific rights that protect those places in a way that other citizens aren't able to. We are your greatest ally in the protection of the environment. We have rights that you can stand on with us. And so we're asking you to continue to make that stand with us, right? And so as we begin to move forward once again, um, I think it's also important to recognize something that um, Don's daughter Wally said that I mentioned the last time we were here. Um, we were, we have, uh, the women get together and we have moon ceremonies every month along the banks of the Penobscot River. And water is a big part of those ceremonies. And so we were there and this was last fall, um, when we were waiting for the federal district court's decision to come and it, it's very emotional. I mean, this is very emotional for us because there is a deep, historic, cultural relationship that we have um, with this waterway. Uh, Our history is in this waterway. When I stand in that water, I'm standing in the same water that my great, 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 great grandfather stood in. That's meaningful to me, right? And so this is an emotional issue for all of us. When the chief and I were communicating, when he got that um, message about the decision coming down, when he was on vacation, uh, it was emotional for both of us. You know, this is an emotional issue. And what this little girl said um, as she was offering her prayers uh, during that ceremony, she turned to the Penobscot River and she said, we don't care what anybody says. We don't care what anybody does. We don't care if they come along and pollute you all over again. We're still going to love you. We're still going to stand with you. We're still going to stand for you. She was talking to that river. That's powerful. And, you know, all the rest of us were in tears because we recognized what that moment meant. Uh, What that moment meant was that we have done what we've needed to do to instill the love for our home into the hearts of our young people the same way our grandparents and parents instilled that love in us. So this is going to continue beyond us. This is going to continue into the next generation and into the next generation, that we have to continue to make a stand for the protection of life. If we fail to take that stand, then we are sacrificing and we're offering up our own lives and the lives of our children. And I don't think that's something that any of us are willing to do. So pay attention to what's going on behind the scenes. Pay attention to who it was, who it's been, Um, standing up for this waterway for generations? Who has been responsible for cleaning that waterway when industry once polluted it? What's going on in the state of Maine right now in regard to mountaintop mining, the transportation of oil sands, and uh, the proposal for hydrofracking in our state? Right. Think about all of those things and how they may connect to the Penobscot River, which is the lifeblood of this entire region. It goes all the way um, from up north to the headwaters, all the way to Passamaquoddy Bay. It is the uh, lifeblood of this entire ecosystem. We're all reliant upon it. And so if the Penobscot River becomes contaminated once again to the degree that it was allowed to be contaminated by the state of Maine before um, at the hands of industry, then this entire region suffers. We now have all kinds of activities that are going on on the Penobscot River. The Whitewater Nationals. The um, uh, There's another race that I can't think of the name of that. You know that we host along the river. Um, we have cultural activities that go on along this waterway. We are always happy to see people out enjoying that water, whether they're from our community or not, because it means that we have balanced. The rights that we were given in our first treaty with Mother Earth, uh, with the Creator, to live here in balanced harmony, we are honoring that treaty by making sure that we are upholding our responsibilities, right? So we can't claim a right without balancing it with responsibilities. That's something that we've done in, in everything that we do uh, in the Penobscot Nation. You look at all of our natural resource resources policies you look at our water quality standards our hunting and fishing regulations all of those things are about balancing our responsibilities with the natural environment that we share our lives with and so as we go forward we're going to need all of you Um, something that really um, stands out for me is that there were tribal people from all over the state that were here when we had the big rally for Standing Rock there were hundreds of people this whole area was full of people Um, And Standing Rock was a a really uh, romantic um, thing for a lot of people. It woke a lot of people up. It inspired something within them. And it's really easy for us to stand up and to show support from something that's detached from us. right? It's always much harder for us to deal with our own stuff. I mean, that's true when we're healing, right? We always have all kinds of uh, advice for somebody going through a hard time. Well, have you tried this, or have you tried that? Or, you know, uh, I have all kinds of advice for you on how to handle this problem from afar. Why isn't this place filled with people from the state of Maine who are, uh, you know, wanting to protect the waterway that sustains our lives here? That's the question that crosses my mind. Why is it easier for us to stand up and show our solidarity with something that is far away from us than it is for us to stand here and show our solidarity and show our love for our own Penobscot River? You know, we need to start showing up where we live. It's vitally important. Our relatives at Standing Rock needed our support. But it's vitally important for us to start standing up for the place that we inhabit, It's vitally important for us to start standing up for the life that we hope to be able to live here, for the lives of our relatives, for the lives of our future generations. One of our um, ceremony leaders was talking about uh, repatriation work, bringing the bones of our ancestors home and burying them. And one of the messages that came through spiritually for them during that time was that that ancestor thanked them for taking them and bringing them home. And told them, you know, we dreamed you into the future. And so now every single one of us here has a responsibility to dream the next generation into being. We also have a responsibility to vision together a, a environment and a society that can actually sustain their lives. It's not enough for us to just give them life. We have to also give them the ability to sustain that life. And I think that that's really important for us to remember as well. So this isn't the end. Um, This isn't the end for us. It's not the end for you. It's not the end for any of us who are standing up to protect life and who have been standing up to protect life. Um, We're going to continue to make these stands. We're going to continue to ask you to come out. We know that it's a lot. We ask you to come out and stand with us uh, quite frequently. The importance of having bodies show up um, can't be stressed enough. When we have these types of actions to show a strong visual um, stand of support for the protection of these waterways is critical. We have hundreds and hundreds of people who said, hey, I'm with you in spirit. Uh, Your spirit isn't going to stop a a pipeline, right? We need your body in that path. Um, You know, we need people to show up. We're spiritual people. We understand that, you know, prayer is an important part of what we do. Uh, We have ceremony involved in everything that that we're doing out here. But we also know that we pray with our feet and that we have to show up and to put ourselves in a place to be able to engage what we call samognis, which is a warrior um, practice of preventing harm. And so we all need to start showing up every single time. We need people, as the chief said, uh, to stand here with us, but also to be out knocking on doors, to be doing your research, to find out which politicians are just going along with what's happening here, um, which ones are riding the fence. There are some that um, have said, you know, well, you know, I, I, I support tribal rights, but they clearly don't understand the issue. Um, but, you know, I also understand where the attorney general is coming from. That's not good enough. Milk toast is not good enough. What we need are people who are willing to say we are no longer going to contribute to the destruction and diminishment of tribal rights. Clearly. Right? Right? We need people who are willing to say very clearly to take a stand, to have the courage, who aren't out there just um, trying to make a political career but who are actually serving the people of Maine for the good to say we are not willing to stand for the destruction of our environment, we are not willing to stand for the destruction of our waterways, we are not going to allow mountaintop mining in the state of Maine, we are not going to allow hydro fracking in the state of Maine, we are not going to pump dirty tar sands oil across the state of Maine for the benefit of foreign markets. That's what we need to hear clearly. So we have a lot of work to do, and we're thankful that we have you standing with us. Um, One of the things that Don always says is that, you know, we've been doing this for a long time, for generations. Tribal people have been standing up to speak on behalf of the earth and all living beings. Um, The only thing that's different today uh, is that you're standing with us. You know, we have friends now uh, who understand how critical these issues are. And um, we are honored to stand with you. We are grateful to stand with you. Um, And we are also uh, deeply committed to stand with you on this issue and on all other issues that protect life.
1: That was Penobscot tribal member and Indigenous rights attorney Sherry Mitchell speaking on July 9th at a rally on the Bangor waterfront. It was recorded by Meredith DeFrancesco, host of Radioactive, which airs here on Thursday afternoons at 4.30. You may have heard the first part of that program last week. Sherry Mitchell is also the co-host of a syndicated radio show called Love and Revolution that airs here on WERU at 10 a.m. on the third Wednesday of every month, which happens to be tomorrow morning, so be sure to tune in and catch that. You're listening to Maine Currents on WERU-FM. I'm Amy Brown. Up next, Matt Murphy talks with former Senator George Mitchell following his recent visit to this area.
4: This is Matt Murphy. I recently had the opportunity to speak with Maine icon Senator George Mitchell. As indicated in Senator Mitchell's 2015 memoir, The Negotiator, his experiences and influences stretched from Maine to the U.S. Senate, from baseball to Disney, and from Northern Ireland to the Middle East. His most recent book is 2016's A Path to Peace, a Brief History of Israeli-Palestinian Negotiations, and a Way Forward in the Middle East. I spoke by phone with Senator Mitchell on July 11, 2017. Welcome to WERU, Senator Mitchell.
5: Thanks. Good to be here.
4: Um, In A Path to Peace, you have a quote that I find rather striking that I think applies to or can apply to many different situations, Um, and it says, uh, quote, We are not certain that we know what to do, but we are certain of what we and everyone else should not do. We must not lapse into despair at the difficulty, and we must avoid inaction, end quote. You're referring to in the book to the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, but I think that may uh, apply to uh, things that are going on now. Uh, Would you uh, agree that we might be able to use that quote?
5: I think it has a wide range of applicability. The point is that uh, oftentimes in public affairs, uh, it takes a while to get where you want to go or what you think is the right destination And you have to be patient and persevering and willing to uh, accept and uh, rebound from setback after setback.
4: And so how might this apply to um, Congress at the current time? Because things are pretty pretty difficult there. And uh, Congress and the Trump administration, because we certainly have quite a bit of controversy and quite a bit of difficulty at this time.
5: Well, life is change uh, for every human being and for every human society, and that includes our democracy. Uh, Life is obviously very different now than it was 20 years ago and vastly different from what it was 50 years ago. And among the things that have changed is the manner in which uh, politics is conducted. Uh, uh, Our country is deeply divided now. It has been deeply divided at times in the past. The reasons, the circumstances may be different, but the outcome is the same, what appears to be dysfunction and paralysis. Uh, I think we just have to work our way through it as a society. I believe very strongly uh, that the United States, the best days are ahead of us. I reject completely those who view the United States in decline at home or around the world. And I think we're just working through a tough period uh, in our politics. I think all of us have to try as best we can, individuals and as American citizens, uh, to work hard for the goals that we think are the right ones and to get our society back functioning in the way we'd like to see it function. Uh, The problem, of course, is different Americans have different definitions of what I've just said. Uh, and uh, so I think there will be a long way ahead, but I, I'm, I personally am quite optimistic about the future. Uh, I said yesterday uh, when I spoke in Brooksville that uh, uh, I tell my teenage kids uh, they're going to live in the 21st century a much better life than I did in the 20th century. I think that's true of most, but not all people. And the challenge we have is to figure out how to create opportunity for a better life for all of our citizens.
4: Would you say that we have a greater capacity now for figuring that out than we did, perhaps 50 years ago?
5: Without a doubt. Uh, One of the most amazing things about the time in which we live is the rapid pace of scientific discovery uh, and technological change. Uh, When I was a small boy growing up in Waterville, Maine, many years ago, Uh, the notion that we would have the knowledge about the functioning of the human body, the functioning of the human brain, that we would be able to map the genome of not just every human being but a variety of animals and uh, other uh, beings around the world. It's just been a phenomenal explosion of knowledge and discovery and I think that's one of the reasons why life is so disorienting now there's so much information there's so much knowledge it's so difficult to choose from uh... that uh, some people react uh, with fear of change some people react with a denial of science uh, uh, thinking that somehow if we can just go backward fifty or a hundred years uh, things will be better uh... they won't be in my judgment we all tend to look backward with rose-colored glasses and uh, imagine life to be better than it really was and look forward with blinders imagining it to be worse than it really will be. So I think we have to keep focused on the future and try hard, as I said, to uh, make opportunity, uh, the, 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 opt- the chance to lead a better life uh, available to every member of our society.
4: Are there any areas in particular that you think are uh, particularly ripe for um, this kind of advancement that you're, that you're referring to?
5: Well, uh, among the subjects uh, I discussed uh, uh, at my appearance last night uh, was climate change, because I think it's a good example of how the denial of science can uh, obstruct our progress and can uh, confuse our thinking the scientific evidence that the climate of the Earth is warming and that man-made activities contribute to it is overwhelming. Uh, There is room for legitimate debate, and I think we should have a debate about how best to deal with it, what are the most efficient and effective ways to respond to this. But to think uh, that the president of our country says that Climate change is a hoax perpetrated by China, and that the United States will withdraw from the Paris Accords, trying to deal with it. Think about that: 195 countries in the world favor it, and only three now oppose it—Syria, Nicaragua, and the United States. Uh, when the science is overwhelming, seems to me uh, to be just. Uh, a futile act of denial and irresponsibility what we should be doing is figuring out what's the best way to deal with this let's have a national and international debate what steps can we take uh, that make economic sense that make social sense that make political sense for all of us and accept the reality of science the same is true in many other areas but that seems to me to stand out as sort of a symbol Uh, of the need for us not to move backward, but to look forward and figure out the best way, the most efficient and effective way to do what we all know needs to be done, and that's to respond positively to the threat of climate change. And there are many positives to it. Uh, this is a long answer, but let me just add that one of the most promising areas of economic activity in the world today is in clean energy. Jobs are growing in the United States in that area much faster than in others, and yet we are ceding to China the world leadership in that area when when naturally and rightfully it should be ours, given the relative statuses of our two economies, the degree of science that we have and knowledge that we have can contribute to finding solutions. We should be working very hard to focus our energy and effort on becoming the world leader in clean energy and equipping our people, especially those who feel left behind by the changes, equipping them with skills and knowledge relevant to the 21st century, not the industries of the 20th and 19th centuries.
4: If you were in the Senate Today, or we're still in the Senate today, um, in addition to dealing with an issue like climate change, um, how might you try, and try to be conducting yourself and, and encouraging your colleagues to conduct themselves?
5: Well, I would try to do it the way I did it when I was there. On the day that I was elected Senate Majority Leader by the Democratic members of the Senate who were then in the majority, the first person I called was Bob Doe was the leader of the republicans and i asked to go see him he agreed we talked and i said to him look you've been here a lot longer than me you know a lot more than i do about the senate but i've been here long enough to know that if the two leaders don't trust each other the senate can't function and so i set forth to him the simplest most basic elements of fair play decency honesty uh... he was delighted we shook hands And to this very moment never once has a harsh word passed between Bob Dole and me in public or in private. We disagreed almost every day on legislation, on Senate procedure. We negotiated uh, candidly and fairly. Many times we reached agreement on a way forward, many times we did not. And we left it to the Senate to decide by votes in an open democratic procedure. And uh, sometimes his view prevailed, sometimes mine prevailed. We debated vigorously on the Senate floor in opposition to one another, but we never made it personal. We stuck to the issues. And I think that's the way to do business uh, in our divided society, not surrendering one's beliefs or principles, but understanding that in a large, diverse country like ours, no one can consistently get 100% of what they want. Uh, we we are all Americans. We believe we want the right thing for America, but we disagree on what that is. And we have to find a way to have principled and reasonable compromise when possible to move our society forward.
4: Here's a question that kind of comes down to um, the very local. Uh, you've uh, negotiated um, as a... Uh, Envoy to the uh, Middle East peace process, you've been in Northern Ireland. On the micro level, getting along with a friend, a neighbor, a family member who uh, is on the other side of the um, cultural divide or on another side of the cultural and political divide, what kind of advice might you have for them on how to um, get along with um, the folks that they disagree with in this very polarized situation we find ourselves in?
5: I've always found it useful to have patience, to have perseverance, and always keep in mind that I might be wrong and the other person might be right. Uh, I I have certain values and beliefs that I try to live and act by, but I also recognize that I'm a human being, and as are all others, and uh, uh, human beings are fallible. None of us is perfect. We all make mistakes. And we ought not to assume that we are the exclusive source of knowledge, information, and right uh, in every issue. And so I always negotiated vigorously and as hard as I could, but fairly and openly, and always tried to keep in mind that uh, to, to genuinely listen uh, to my opponent's point of view and accept the possibility that he or she might be right. And I think that's good advice in every human Situation.
4: Thank you. In your book, A Path to Peace, um, the brief history of Israeli Palestinian negotiations and a way forward in the Middle East, what do you think the way forward at this point? What do you think of the situation at this point in time?
5: It's very difficult to to be optimistic uh, given the circumstances. First, one must not view the Israeli Palestinian conflict in isolation from the circumstances around it. Uh, it's part of a region, it's affected by the violence and upheaval in the region, all of which makes compromise and agreement much more difficult for everyone, and it in turn affects events in the broader region, now subject to massive upheaval, widespread violence, huge difficulty uh, in the eruption of conflict in. Syria, and Iraq, and Yemen, and differences among the Gulf states. Uh, however, uh, I believe that nations like people act ultimately out of self-interest, and I believe that the uh, people of Israel and the Palestinian people will best be served in the long run by an agreement that uh, provides a security reasonable, sustainable security for the people of Israel and an independent, sovereign state for the Palestinians. I would encourage all of your listeners to go onto their computers and pull up a copy of a speech made by uh, President George W. Bush in Jerusalem in January of uh, uh, 2008, the year before he left office, when he was addressing a group of israelis and palestinians and what he said to them basically was to the palestinians you want a state and the united states supports your effort for a state but you're not going to get a state until the people of israel have reasonable and sustainable security for their citizens and then he said to the israelis you have a state a very successful state but you can't get safety and security in a reasonable and sustainable way with the continuation of this conflict, and you won't get it until the Palestinians get a state. So he made the argument that each should be vested in the success of the other, because neither could achieve their objective by denying to the other its objective. And I think ultimately that will be the attitude that prevails. I think it is in their self-interest. I think it's it's very difficult now. It, I drew a whole book about it, so I can't describe it in detail now, Mm -hmm. Uh, but I think ultimately they will come around to do that, and it won't happen without their participation, with strong leadership, encouragement, and assistance by the United States.
4: Last question. Um, Nuclear proliferation, terrorism and extremism, hunger around the world, climate change you mentioned before, all of these issues pile up and can be very overwhelming do you have a piece of advice for those um who are uh daunted by this who feel overwhelmed who have a hard time um you know maybe even getting through the day or certainly uh visualizing a positive future with so many problems what might you say to folks like that
5: well first uh i would try to establish some context that there has never been a time in human history when there were no problems uh... every human society has confronted problems of different kinds and as i said earlier life is changed Uh, no one lives in a world in which things are the same fifty years after they were born or twenty years after they were born or ten years in the future secondly uh... all of these problems are manageable Uh, I don't believe there's any such thing as a conflict that can't be ended, because conflicts are conducted and sustained by human beings. They can be ended by human beings, and in fact, every conflict ultimately does come to an end, one way or the other, as we've seen uh, historically. Uh, Third, uh, I think we Americans are the most fortunate people ever to have lived, to be citizens of a society that, despite our many serious imperfections and despite our many errors and misjudgments in the past, remain still the most open, the most free, the most just society in all of human history. And from that, we have to work hard as individuals and as citizens of the society uh, to try to preserve the best of the past and to improve upon it in the future. I guess the way I sum it up is this. If you look at the uh, American values set forth uh, in our Constitution and Declaration of Independence and refined over two, two and a quarter centuries of uh, history, uh, we have high aspirations. Uh, you can't sum up our values in a single sentence, but you can make a good start by saying what we believe in is equal justice, equal rights for all, and equal opportunity for all. What we know That's not a reality yet in American life or anywhere else. So I think what we should do is to work hard as individuals and as citizens to raise our actions to the level of our aspirations. Imagine an America where our beliefs apply to everyone and work toward that. And while we probably will never reach the point of perfection, in fact, we certainly won't reach the stage of perfection. We can do a lot of good on the way, trying to improve ourselves.
4: Senator George Mitchell, thank you so much for joining us uh, here on WERU this morning. Really appreciate your time and your wisdom that you shared with us.
5: Okay, thank you, uh, Matt.
1: That was Matt Murphy talking with former Senator George Mitchell. He also recently spoke with performance artist Judith Sloan about her latest project, and that's up next here on Main Currents.
4: This is Matt Murphy for WERU. I am on the phone right now with writer and actor Judith Sloan. Good afternoon, Judith.
0: Good afternoon. It's so good to be talking to you.
4: Now, you are a summer resident of Maine, of uh, the WERU part of Maine, and you have some uh, shows coming up.
0: I do. I am performing in Brunswick on July 27th and in Brooksville at the Reversing Falls Sanctuary on July 29th, and in Eastport on August 5th, and um, the Scudder Arts Festival on August 7th.
4: And for those who don't know you, what, would, what will you be doing?
0: I'm going to be dealing with stories of migration and refuge and finding home. And in this climate that we're in, I think everybody's on edge. And so it's called Off the Record, between a laugh and a hard place.
4: And what kind of folks are we going to be uh, hearing from during this performance?
0: During this performance, you're going to be hearing from a guy who has the label of being an anecdotist, meaning that he tells anecdotes. So he's a truck driver. I'll just do a little bit of him for you. I'm a fabricator. That's what I do. I make small-scale things of large-scale projects. I fabricate the model. People look at it. We move things around, figure it out before we go big. And so he talks a lot about um, what you believe from what you see, whether you have to have a picture of something to tell you whether it's true or not, which is kind of our contemporary world, right? Mm. And then he gets on a roll about Twitter and wondering if, you know, back in the day, let's say them crusades, I mean the old-time Christian papal military crusades, which lasted 200 years, hand-to-hand slaying. It was Byzantine. That was the time. Byzantine. They just wanted to convert or kill all pagans, Jews, heretics, Muslims. Well, let's say one little village of witches or pagans or Jews or heretics, or maybe just one Witt had a Twitter feed and warned everybody about what was coming. Would it have lasted for 200 years? So he goes on a roll about wondering what, where are we getting our information, what do we believe, and whether you can warn people. Or is it all just fabricated? So anyway, he's an anecdotist. Then he asks the question of, you know, eyewitness, what good is it anymore? So he's one person, and then there's a hairdresser who talks a lot about things that you can't prove or disprove because you're just really hearing the story from somebody who's sitting in your chair. So where's the evidence? And I think we're in the middle of that, right, in our contemporary news world. Um, Who do you believe? Uh, So she's talking about one of her customers who takes years to figure out a very bad memory through painting a picture, and at one point she starts talking about the women who have to deal with sexual harassment on the job. Do you want to hear a little bit of her as well? Yeah, sure. You know, I'm not one of those people who has the exact thing to say at the right time. There are people like that. They know exactly what to say. But not me. If somebody insults me or something happens, it takes me months to figure it out. And then I realize, oh, my God, they were insulting me. And then by the time I realize how insulting it was, I'm so angry. It's like six months later. I just want to blow up. Not like some people. They know exactly what to say at the right time. For example, I was on the subway and I saw this woman. She was on the subway. It was very crowded. She was holding up a hand over her head. And she said, excuse me, did somebody lose this hand? I found it on my ass. How did she know exactly what to say at the right time? It's like those women on the Bill O'Reilly show. When they finally started talking, people were asking them, why did you wait so long to say something? They said they were caught in the headlights. They didn't know what to say. They were shocked. So I'm dealing with a lot of the things that are kind of floating around in the news, but are already embedded in people's stories.
4: And in terms of what motivates you and uh, inspires you with your writing and with uh, uh, performing these characters, uh, what is it that, that gets you going, that gets you uh, juiced up to do that?
0: You know, you, I'm like a deer, caught in the head like that. Uh, I'm not sure. It really depends. If I hear a good story, I've been listening to stories of immigrants and refugees for many, many years. I live in Queens, which is the most diverse place on the planet, and many other places are becoming more and more diverse. And so I just have this belief that if you can listen to somebody's story and hear what's behind Mm-hmm. their behavior, their culture, their way of being, you can coexist in a more joyful way. And I enjoy listening to people's stories.
4: So it all
1: we are running short on time so we're going to have to end that there. Uh you can get more information about Judith Sloan and her upcoming performances by going to Earsay, dot Again, that's Judith Sloan, a performance uh, performing artist who will be having some local shows in the upcoming area soon. She was interviewed by Matt Murphy. You've been listening to Maine Currents independent local news views and culture. I'm Amy Brown. Matt Murphy and Meredith DeFrancesco contributed the segments that you heard today. You can reach us at news at w-e-r-u and you can catch Main Currents here every Tuesday at four o'clock only here on your community radio station, WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. Keep it tuned here for Democracy Now! coming up right ahead after a few messages, and then we will have uh, Jazz Alchemy coming up after that.